Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include real estate commissions and taxes, my interview with LexisNexis, Risk Solutions, Kevin King on alternative credit data and expanding the consumer credit box, and a quick look at the Fed's most recent moves. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, MGIC. Since inventing the modern form of private mortgage insurance in 1957, MGIC has insured more than 13.5 million mortgage loans. With innovative products, tools, and strategies that help consumers solve problems and fuel growth, MGIC is a true partner to lenders. Explore tools and solutions to boost your business at MGIC.com boost. Once you lick the frosting off of a cupcake, it becomes a muffin. And muffins are healthy. You're welcome. Adding another expense to a transaction is certainly not welcome. Yet that's exactly what was voted into effect by residents of Los Angeles County in November. When you sell a house, paying a 5-6% to 6% commission to the real estate agent is typical. In LA, there's another 5% tax on top of that for high-priced houses to help fund affordable housing. Apparently, home sellers in Los Angeles are slashing prices and sweetening deals before a new mansion tax goes into effect on April 1st. The effect on supply and demand and pricing will be interesting, especially how it impacts the volume of sales. Along those lines, don't pad your volume numbers, especially if you're about to go public. Otherwise, the Department of Justice may come knocking, like it did with Sterling Bancorp. And don't discriminate. In this environment, where every deal is precious, why would you? For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show Kevin King, Vice President of Credit Risk and Marketing Strategy at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. He has nearly 15 years of experience in alternative credit data and risk analytics, having served in a variety of strategic and leadership roles at LexisNexis Risk Solutions and formerly at ID Analytics. In each of these roles, he's focused on providing financial services and telecommunications companies with a more complete view into consumer creditworthiness, enabling enterprises to expand financial inclusion and refine lending decisions across every consumer segment. Simple question to start, or maybe not. What is alternative credit data? Can you can you explain what this is? Oh, and and you're well, maybe not. Could be could be telling, Robbie. I think you're on the subject. I will give you my personal definition and and maybe then i'll let you know some of the gray area where others might quibble to me alternative credit data is data which meets three important criteria the first is that it is predictive of consumers ability to manage credit responsibilities or if we're talking about kind of commercial real estate it could be a business's ability to manage those relationships uh second it isn't captured in traditional credit reports in tools like, say, a FICO score. Um, yeah, certainly, large credit bureaus can sell alternative data, but they would hold it out separately, right? We're talking about the kind of signals that have been used to make lending decisions like whether or not to fund a mortgage for decades. All right, so predictive of a consumer or a business's ability to manage credit responsibilities is one. Second is, is it captured in those traditional tools we've been using for so long? And third is it clearly meets all regulatory standards for use in credit decisioning. And there are a fair amount of those standards, Robbie. So um, 
you know, I, I'd said I'd give you my three and then I'd tell you the difference. Some people would argue with me on that third item. Uh, you know, do you really need to overlay regulatory standards here? For me, Robbie, you know, the world has changed so fast from a lending perspective in the last 10 years. Uh, lenders are racing to better understand consumer or small business credit quality, uh, muddying the picture by saying, well, here's a bunch of data that you can't legally use now, but who knows, in five years, maybe you could. I think it just clouds the picture. Uh, so for me, I'm going to stick to those first three criteria um, and what we talk about today. How do you feel like traditional credit reporting is limiting the dream of home ownership for people to, I guess, beyond it doesn't fully capture the borrower's lending picture? Well, that's a big part of it. But but um, if we're setting that aside, let's let's start by talking the roughly, you know, 50 to 55 million U.S. adult consumers. That's roughly 20 percent of the population that don't have a traditional credit score like a FICO, for example, today. Um, that pretty much puts you out of the running for a mortgage and then you know, consequently that dream of home ownership. Um, so any opportunity for thin or no file consumers, so consumers who either have a little bit or no history at all at the major credit bureaus, um, yeah, any opportunity they have to get a mortgage is, is frankly tied to some kind of maybe limited pilot program or the lender is going through heroics to get an investor to agree to purchase such a loan via manual underwriting, the kind of things that are um, not scalable, not sustainable. Um, and I think it's really important that everybody understands these 50 million plus consumers, uh, the vast majority, 90% or more, can be scored with various forms of alternative data and that can produce an assessment that is almost, if not as predictive, as reliable as a FICO score. So to say the data isn't out there uh, to evaluate these individuals is unfair. And once you do apply alternative data and get a read, you're putting those individuals back in the running for that dream of home ownership. Uh, now I, I wanna be you know, honest, Robbie, with your, your listeners here. Um, every one of those consumers is not gonna meet credit quality, right? Um, we can talk about the makeup of the US consumers. They don't have credit scores, uh, but there are a lot of people who won't meet standards, but many will. And I think the very first step you talk about with alternative data is just how do we get them back under consideration and let their behaviors speak for themselves versus an absence of data on that individual speaking for them. So let's now bring in the full picture, full story of somebody's credit worthiness. Credit bureaus are starting to factor in things like rent and utility payments, but how do credit scores still not always tell a loan applicant's full story? Uh, right, really good question. And, you know, Robbie, I, I would argue that that statement is accurate for every U.S. consumer, right? When we talk about some of the issues that we've alluded to here with, you know, a term that often gets used is financial inclusion, right? How do we provide more U.S. consumers with access to more affordable types of credit? A lot of people will zoom in on, say, the 70 million consumers that have a below prime credit score in the U.S. But I, I think the things that I'll point to are, are true for everybody. Um, let's start with this. The way consumers manage their financial lives over the last, certainly, 25 years has changed dramatically. 
get the traditional credit signals that are typically getting leveraged to make decisions uh, for monumental um, financial uh, tools uh, and services like mortgages, they really haven't changed much. And and I'll give you some examples. Telecommunications. 30 years ago, the phone bills that consumers were paying were, were, you know, unconsequential. Today, it's not uncommon that a household that's got some kind of family plan that's paying cell phones, but also internet, possibly some kind of, you know, cable or streaming service. We're talking about a bill that often rivals an auto payment, a credit card payment. You know, we can be talking four or $500 a month easy, depending on, you know, how different services have been bundled. Huge financial responsibility and how consumers manage that is really telling. That's not considered. Online lending, right? Think of all the installment lenders, kind of fintechs that have come up and kind of tried to disrupt the way large banks have done um, installment loans. Um, that's largely uncaptured, particularly on the credit-seeking side of things. Um, buy now, pay later. I won't take us down a, a rabbit hole there discussing its its pros and cons, but it's a massively popular form of financing and and credit management that all those traditional tools are blind to. Same is true with subprime loans, which have been around for a long time, but are still very much unrepresented. So that's the, boy, things have changed and traditional credit hasn't evolved. Um, Then frankly, there are issues that have been around for a while. Uh, You can't get much insight into a consumer's assets through traditional data. So Robbie, you and I both have a $2,000 credit card limit and have used up that full limit. But what they don't know is that you got a property, you own a car, you own a boat. I don't have any of those things. Um, You're a much better credit risk than than I am. You can't tell that from traditional data. Those are all things that I kind of point to and say, traditional data is not providing a full picture of consumer credit worthiness and frankly is getting worse by the year. Um, a lot of times those things that I would say, uh, are degrading about traditional credit feel like they're positive for consumers. Uh, you see a lot of times when you apply for credit now, uh, them saying, Hey, you can apply now. It won't impact your credit. We won't do what's called post a hard inquiry on you. A medical debt soon to go away, certainly under $500 student loan debt may go away forbearance, uh, and all the noise introduced by the pandemic. Um, that all sounds good. It boosts consumers' credit scores, right? But what it's also doing is it's degrading lenders' confidence in those assessments. And uh, and that's not good for consumers, right? That's that's a negative. Alternative data helps balance those scales. We can fill in some of the gaps uh, to provide that more complete view of consumers' credit health. The whole system benefits. God, I almost feel like we should call it new credit data rather than alternative credit data considering how traditional <laughs> oh I'm, I'm i'm with you you know sometimes uh sometimes you get an industry gets a term early early on and just can't shake it um because i, I would say another thing that's important here this is true for my company that's one of the largest providers of these insights in the united states is we're rarely going to a lender and saying stop using fico right? It's not really an alternative. It's an and. It's an additional signal that lays on uh, top of a FICO score and some of these other tools to make sure you fill out that picture and give consumers 
the fairest and most well-earned access to credit that can uh, that can be offered. Well, let's take a second to talk about LexisNexis Risk Solutions. What are you working on over there, and uh, what are you excited to tell the people about? So, a really, really good question, Robbie. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll give a shorter answer here, right? Because I, I don't want people to feel like they're getting um, drawn into a, an overly, overly long product overview. I'll say this: you know, we deliver alternative credit risk assessments to lenders primarily in the United States. We do that, you know, at marketing stage, but most of our activity is at account opening, meaning that some consumer applies for credit for any variety of reasons. They don't have a FICO or a lender just wants a better understanding. They come to us and they ask for an assessment and we deliver um, credit scores that look a lot like a FICO Three digits, 700 is a pretty good score, 800 is a pretty good score, 500 not so good. Um, and we also deliver attributes, so kind of individual insights that lenders can use with their analytics teams to build their own assessments. Uh, but all of it is guided by how do we provide more relevant information that meets the, the three criteria we started out with, predictive, net new, and meets regulatory standards, so that consumers get the credit that they've earned by responsibly managing various relationships out in the market. Um, and from my standpoint, it's my obligation to make those um, those scores, those assessments stronger and stronger every year, which often means what new data sources can we pull in to, uh, to make sure consumers are getting fair credit for their behavior. Well, I want to close by asking, is does this data allow for new or more creative lending practices? Where do you see really good use cases for it? Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely, Robbie. So it started by saying th these data signals are really only for use when you can't get a FICO score on a consumer, right? In the absence of all information, go call an alternative credit score like the risk view scores that LexisNexis offers. Then about 10 to 12 years ago, lenders start saying, well, maybe I'm going to pull this information on people whose credit scores are about 10 to 30 points lower than what I normally approve. You know, they're on, they're close to the line where I might say yes. And maybe if I learned a little bit more, I might say yes. And then what we've really entered to in, in let's say the last half decade is particularly very forward thinking lenders saying, um, gosh, I can get a better understanding of every consumer, the most prime consumers all the way down to the least prime by pulling in these insights. And that will help me maximize my profitability and extend the most competitive offer I can. And as consumers' ability to shop around and find the best offer for any kind of financial product goes up in the internet age, um, the importance of having that finely tuned offer strategy, even on somebody you know you're going to say yes to, they're a 780 FICO, you're going to approve them for something fine-tuning that offer to maximize the chance that a consumer chooses to do business with you is uh, is often what it's about. And I think that's the path forward that we'll see with alternative data. Well said. And uh, I thought that was great. Thank you for making the time to talk to me today. Oh, Robbie, look, it, it couldn't be more of a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Let's review. The Federal Open Market Committee raised the Fed Fund's target rate by 0.25% last week, as expected, following a couple weeks of banking turmoil. 
The committee also softened its stance toward future rate increases by changing the language in their policy statement, saying additional firming may be appropriate versus previously saying additional firming will be appropriate. The forecast release, along with the policy statement, show policymakers expect unemployment to rise 4.5% by the end of the year and the Fed funds rate to be 5% to 5.25%, a level the markets are currently not anticipating. Given the current risks to the economy, some market participants anticipate a rate cut within 3 to 9 months if the slowdowns in wage growth and inflation are sufficient. Elsewhere, of great interest to lenders and real estate agents, new home sales rose 1.1% and prices rose 2.7% to a median price of $438,200 in February. Sales of existing homes spiked 14.5% as a result of the interest rate dip in mid-January. That was a while ago. Time flies. This week sees the end of both March and the first quarter. Over the course of the week, there is $142 billion in month-end supply from Treasury to get through today through Thursday, along with several higher-tiered releases, particularly the Fed favorite PCE for February, January home price indexes, March consumer confidence, final Q4 GDP, and final March consumer sentiment. The highlight of today's economic calendar is a $42 billion two-year note auction in the afternoon. Scheduled data is nearly non-existent, and markets will also receive remarks from Fed Board Governor Jefferson. We begin the week with agency MBS prices worse an eighth to a quarter, the two-year at 3.94, and the 10-year yielding 3.46 after closing last week at 3.38%, based on sentiment that the terrible bank news is in the rearview mirror. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. I looked out of my living room window yesterday in horror to see a crowd gathered around a crashed motorcyclist. So I quickly put on my coat and shoes and rushed outside. I pushed through the crowd shouting, let me through, let me through. I finally managed to reach the front of the crowd. A woman turned to me and said, oh, thank goodness, are you a doctor? To which I replied, no, but that's my pizza. <laughs> Thanks again to MGIC. Since inventing the modern form of private mortgage insurance in 1957, MGIC has insured more than 13.5 million mortgage loans. With innovative products, tools, and strategies that help customers solve problems and fuel growth, MGIC is a true partner to lenders. Explore tools and solutions to boost your business at MGIC.com boost. about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.